This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... My picks from the Toronto International Film Festival. Hate propaganda in a historical context. The great D&D schism. And the 101 on Aleister Crowley. Well, it is time to begin perhaps the grandest and most glorious of all possible cinema huts. Uh, this is the world-class cinema hut established by Robin with the cooperation and uh, good offices of the City of Toronto and no doubt the Canadian government in some shadowy fashion. So, Robin, take us to the grandest of all cinema huts, the Toronto International Film Festival. So the Toronto International Film Festival was in its 37th year, and it's my, I think, uh, 20th year or something like that of doing it full-time. Actually, more than that, because I've been doing this since 1986. So my lovely wife Valerie and I take time off, and we go to uh, four to six movies a day for what is now an 11-day span, uh, where you're running between different venues, the two main downtown commercial multiplexes, uh, plus a variety of other theaters, including the recently erected Tiff Bell Lightbox, which is an incredible temple to cinematic culture in the downtown of Toronto. And this started out as, uh, in typically modest Toronto fashion, was called the Festival of Festivals uh, when it started, and even during the first years when we started going. And the original idea was that this would this wouldn't try to be its own film festival. This would just try to gather the best things from other international festivals and show them to Toronto. But because of its timing in the year, at the beginning of uh, September, it has gradually over the years become a bigger and bigger deal because it's the perfect time to launch Oscar caliber films into the art market that begins uh, in September when people's brains turn away from CGI pictures, although not that there are a lot of CGI pictures in 86, but they turn away from blockbusters and towards the prestige pictures. It's also a venue for all kinds of uh, indie film and world cinema, which tends to be uh, more my interest. So we've been uh, gorging on the first initial wave of uh, world cinema and indie titles for many years now. And uh, as a consequence over the years, I've been able to get a leg up and see where the new cinematic trends are coming from. That's how I uh, was able to see that the Hong Kong action movie was a thing. Uh, I first saw uh, Better Tomorrow in 1986 as part of a retrospective and began to follow John Wu and other Hong Kong film directors and as a consequence was in a position to design Feng Shui and the Shadow Fist uh, world uh, that goes with the uh, Shadow Fist trading card game. And another thing that it's done for me over the years is the I have always created little capsule reviews in which I try to distill the essence of the film in two sentences, one of which is a description of the film, and the other one is a assessment of why it works or doesn't work or what it is that it's doing, and that has been an enormously useful exercise in coming to terms with narrative, because you can't, for example, gorge on 45 novels in an 11-day period, but you can certainly although it is somewhat grueling, watch uh, 45 to 50 films. And the 
juxtaposition of seeing all of those films together really teaches you a lot about narrative if you open yourself up to that level of analysis. Yeah, um, I think I go to the Chicago International Film Festival every year, which is a small uh, behind-hand cousin film festival. It's I, w- I would say maybe it's a high B-rank film festival. It's certainly not on the A-list, not Toronto, not Tribeca, not Sundance, not Cannes. But for film festivals, it's a pretty good film festival. And although I am generally seeing about, I think, ha- probably half uh, the number of films you see, you see 45 to 50, and I usually see 22 to 25 uh, in a given uh, Chicago fest, you do get that sort of, you know, uh, rapid juxtaposition of different ways of telling uh, not just the same story, but different ways of telling all kinds of different stories. And it it really does, I think, uh, get into your bones and, and teach you how stories work. So what are the highlights of, of this year's Toronto Fest that uh, people of, of your ilk, the not the people who are necessarily going to rush off and see uh, PTA's uh, The Master, because everyone was going to go see that anyway, but uh, the, the crazy stuff that no one's ever heard of except for people who read your blog. Right. So what I uh, do is look at things that do not have distribution at the time that the program book comes out. Now, quite often, they will uh, get distribution along the way, and this year was a huge banner year in general for the perceived quality of the films, not just the things that I saw, which I thought were quite high, but also the higher-profile films got much better overall reviews than they have in many years. So we can really look forward to a huge spate of interesting films coming out. But I'm going to hit the three sort of really masterpiece things that really struck me and then go and look uh, and then prune the rest of my list of really solid things so that they're mostly things of the kind of geeky gamer interest that listeners to this podcast will be into. The first film that really completely blew me away, though, was a documentary called The Act of Killing, uh, directed by Joshua Oppenheimer and Christine Sin and Anonymous. And it was co-directed by Anonymous because it's a documentary about the death squads in Indonesia who carried out the uh, millions of deaths required to solidify the uh, American-supported right-wing regime that got into power between 65 and 66. And basically anyone who's from Indonesia who worked on the film is credited anonymously because these guys are still in charge. And unlike most places that underwent a a genocide, they're uh, not only uh, still around, but celebrated. They go on talk shows in one sequence in this film uh, in which uh, the perky hostess uh, proudly talks about the extermination of the communists that they undertook. And the premise of this film is that the documentarian went to them and asked them to reenact what they did however they wanted to do it. And these guys, as is often the case with the actual people who commit death squad killings, started out as gangsters. They're paramilitaries and they uh, the military regime outsourced the actual murder to these guys. They started out as scalpers outside cinemas. And one of the things that they objected to the uh, regime that they took over was that they introduced quotas for more local films in theaters, depriving the, the gangsters of the Hollywood films that created their profit margin because people didn't want to scalp local production so much. <laughs> it's it's always about filmmaking, isn't it? Right? Yes. And, and it's very much about filmmaking because these guys identified 
with the gangsters and the cowboys, uh, with John Wayne, with the guys that they saw on the screen. And so they're surreally prepared to reenact uh, what they did, and they reenacted in terms of movie cliches. So you see them not only doing interrogation scenes, uh, they do scenes in which they play the, the victims as well as the victimizers. There's even a musical number where they all come out of a giant fish, and they're dancing with dancing girls, and one of the main gangsters is uh, almost always in drag for a re no reason that is particularly addressed in this. I suppose if you're with a gangster who's committed several hundred killings, you don't ask why is he wearing a dress. Uh, no, you don't. Uh, this is they had to have someone to play the the uh, ingenue, I guess. Yeah. Um, and as uh, you, a thing that you have often said is that uh, Indonesia is uh, one of, if not the most messed up countries in the world, and this documentary certainly does nothing to disabuse one of that notion. Although, in fairness, when I said that, Indonesia was still in the uh, throes of the military government that uh, was established by, by that purge. They, they were sort of deciding whether or not they were going to fight a series of civil wars. They had a, a, a long-running uh, Islamist extremist movement, and, since I and then they had that tsunami. And then since I said that, they actually you know, turned things over, for the most part, to a civilian elected government, which, as you uh, intimate, is certainly in no hurry to go and examine what happened to all those communists that used to be around the place. But it's not quite as god-awful as, say, the Congo is. So to our Indonesian listeners, I, I hasten to say, in 2002, you guys were a great role-playing game, but now not so much. And the question of to what extent the guys who perpetrated the genocide are not in charge uh, is a really open question when you see this documentary, because you see that the three million strong paramilitary organization uh, where the guys will get up and say, we're not gangsters, but you know, gangsters are really great because they, the word gangster comes from the word for free men and you need gangsters to get things done. So the level of democracy that is overlying this dictatorship uh, is a pretty thin veneer indeed. And in fact, in one sequence, you see the gangster who likes to dress up in drag attempt to get himself elected to parliament. And, uh, one of the main reasons he fails is that uh, he doesn't have enough free T-shirts to give out. So it's a really um, alternately uh, darkly funny and then just also just dark, dark, dark presentation of these guys and their psychopathology and the extent to which they can allow glimmers of consciousness to crack through. And it's it's really dizzying. And, and the thing about this film is not just the subject matter, but the fact that as a documentary, if you think of the great classic documentaries, there are always uh, one or two sort of jaw-dropping scenes or a scene that sort of crystallizes everything that you remember as being characteristic of that film. And in active killing, every scene is one of those hallmark, jaw-dropping, incredible scenes. So wow. uh, it's really one to keep an eye out for. In the fiction realm, their favorite title was The Land of Hope. It's a Japanese film directed by a director called uh, Sion Sono, uh, whose past films I've uh, kept an eye on and enjoyed. Uh, there's one called Cold Fish, which is a really harrowing serial killer film. There was one last year called Hamizu about the survival in the wake of the earthquake. And this takes the disaster theme a step forward. Uh, Land of Hope is about a fictional second Fukushima-style uh, nuclear meltdown and what happens to a family who are just on the outer edge of the evacuation zone that the government sets up when the nuke plant melts down. And 
by just on the edge, they're literally on the other side of the police tape. And it's an alternately beautiful, charming, sweet family movie. And uh, not a family movie in terms of being directed at families, but it's about a family and the, the bonds between the family. And of course, that just makes it all the more harrowing as you see the results of this uh, disaster begin to encroach on their lives. And so uh, is it basically something where the, 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 the story arc is we begin at point A and we just see a constant diminution and erosion down to sort of a, a horrible, grim uh, end? Or is there, uh, you know, setbacks and turnarounds and uh, something else? I mean, it's not that one is better than the other, but I think there are certainly some people who prefer to watch a, a film that varies the emotional tone or the emotional trajectory a little more than the classic here are people whose lives are going to go to hell in the next two hours type film. It's certainly not the road. Uh, there are lots of sweet, heartwarming moments. There are There's a lot of humor to it. And there are uh, moments where you begin to think, oh, well, maybe their concern about radiation is not necessarily so well-founded. But uh, let's just say the title Land of Hope is ironic. Yeah, I think that's a fair estimation even going into it. My third thing that really sort of blew me away in terms of being a, a magical, strange, transcendent film is another documentary. The documentaries did really well this year in my uh, playlist. And this would be a Canadian film called The End of Time. And it's a sort of an imagistic examination of our concept of time that takes you from the, the CERN particle collider to volcanism in Hawaii to the abandoned and now being reclaimed stretches of uh, derelict homes in Detroit. And it's one that you really want to see on a big screen because it has this sort of magical impact where, and it will show you these incredible vistas. The film is directed by a man named Peter Mettler, who's also an acclaimed cinematographer. He does a lot of photography for Canadian fiction films. And then he has this parallel career as a documentarian. So there are these incredible images of nature where you initially they're they're stunningly beautiful sometimes you can't even necessarily resolve what they are there's a long sequence where it's just you're just watching these lava flows that are photographed and composed in an incredible way and just meditating on the bizarre physical circumstance that causes melting rock to flow across the earth and burn up plants. And, and if I'm making this sound dull, this is certainly not a typical narrative film where there's uh, a thesis being advanced. It really is a poetic imagistic film, but it's uh, one that I found really had more to it than just the sum of its parts that it is uh, not only an intellectual, but a sort of a, almost sort of a scientifically spiritual film. And it, uh, also really sort of knocked me back on my heels. So, so those would be my three masterpieces. There was uh, also a lot of really solid films that I would point people to. Uh, one is called Penance from Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Uh, horror fans, especially fans of Japanese horror, may know him from such films as the original Pulse and Cure. This is actually a four and a half hour miniseries made for Japanese television that follows uh, in episodic sequence uh, first four young women and then uh, uh, an older woman. And the older woman is the mother of a uh, girl who 15 years ago as a fourth grader was murdered. And the other four girls are 
her former playmates. And after the murder, because they all see the perpetrator but are unable to identify him, she sort of cruelly goes to them as children and tells them that she's going to exact a penance from them later in their lives. And this idea hovers over them and 15 years later begins to destroy all of their lives sort of in turn. And it's a initially weird series of fables that you can't quite get your head around. But by the end of it, by the final episode where you begin to understand the events that put this all into motion, you see a uh, weird but resolving into logic uh, story. So it has this sort of, it's made for television. It's There is a lot of uh, dialogue in it, as you would expect from television, but it does have this weird unsettling power to it. Now, I don't know in what format this will ever be available to English speakers. Presumably, maybe it will come out on DVD at some point, but that's uh, something really interesting to keep an eye out for. What can you uh, tell me about Byzantium? Uh, not that I was not perhaps even more interested in some of the other films, but uh, vampires are sort of professionally compelling to me at this moment, and Neil Jordan is certainly a name to be conjured with. So what do we got uh, about Byzantium? So Neil Jordan has gone back to his occasional dalliances with horror, and he's returned to the vampire flick with a film starring Gemma Arterton and Sharsi Ronan, and they are two vampires on the run, who settle down in an English seaside town and find themselves uh, coming to a final reckoning with how they came to be. And it's in, these are, uh, as is usual in the vampire form, they play with the rules a little bit. So they, uh, for example, don't have to worry about going out in the daylight. They, they're perfectly... Uh, <laughs> well, in an English seaside resort, there's not going to be any of that anyway. Well, so. yes. Uh, maybe that's why. <laughs> the vampires are killed by sunlight, so they go to Brighton. Um, <laughs> it, it's a mood piece. Uh you find out what the relationship is that binds these two together. They're shadowy pursuers that they're on the run from. And Shershi uh, uh, Ronan, as the uh, visually younger of the vampires, is trying to come to terms with who she is and, and is wants to no longer lead a secret life. And, of course, uh, that desire to be honest to someone uh, brings about a culmination. And it's a, definitely a mood piece. There's a big tip of the hat to the hammer horror tradition, but it's uh, also a very modern story that bridges the gap between the present day and an earlier Gothic era that they previously uh, flashed back to. So that was a lot of fun. Cool. I was, um, uh, I could have predicted it by the way, when you uh, were coming out that every single South Korean film you saw would get into the top or top, but one category. And once again, you have uh, done me and South Korea has done you proud. Uh, I think of the, all this, I mean, in, in my personal opinion, South Korean cinema is some of the best in the world right now. You pretty much, if, if you were a South Korean, you would be completely justified in saying, uh, you know, for a French film, that's not bad. You know, I, I think South Korean films are absolutely A-list. And I guess we're getting the A of the A-list at, uh, at TIFF. Or what's your sense of that? Um, I think that's absolutely the case. That First of all, they're one of the few countries uh, that has a viable domestic film scene. Part of that is because they set up uh, investment laws that allow individual uh, people to in make small investments in movie production companies uh, so that rather than a direct subsidy, there's sort of an investment system. And there uh, is also a quota system that gives these films access to movie theaters. And they were, however, able to leverage that into a popular cinema that people were really interested in seeing. So you get really 
slick films with strong storytelling uh, from sometimes an arty point of view. One of the films I saw in another country is this uh, minimalistic film where Isabelle Huppert plays variations on the same character three times in a row, and that's very much in the low-budget art movie tradition. But something, for example, like The Thieves, which is now the uh, biggest grossing film in South Korea, is this incredibly fun surprising heist movie where it starts off seeming like it's just going to be, you know, a kind of a Korean Ocean's Eleven with style and cool characters and interplay. But then you see that there's a twist on that because the real question is about the alliances and uh, potential betrayals between all of the members of the gang. And among the members of the gang is Simon Yam, the great Hong Kong actor. So there's also a sense of sort of uh, pan-Asian commercial cinema coming together in this. And then the film grows and becomes another film. It becomes a cracking action movie at the end. And so, although it actually has quite a long running time, it feels uh, like it just uh, rushes by and is really an example of fun, entertaining, commercial storytelling at its finest, and uh, one that I hope people get a chance to uh, check out. Now, do you have any sense? I mean, plenty of countries have, uh, to one or another extent, uh, some sort of domestic protection uh, clauses in their film laws, and they have uh, quotas and other sort of national uh, national priorities for domestic film. But no other country makes South Korean movies. I mean, even if they could, they they aren't. Uh, what is there something do you think specific to the South Korean film uh, community? Is it a great man theory? Was there some South Korean John Ford that we don't know about that sort of uh, set them on the right path back in 1950, and we're just uh, reaping the benefits of that now? I think it's a more recent revolution that took as its model the Hong Kong scene. And so what they did is they looked at another small, uh, small Asian regional cinema that nonetheless turned out star-driven packaged films that took part in particular genres that were people that people were interested in and that in turn drew inspiration from the Hollywood studio system of the 30s and 40s. And so that emphasis on glamour and classic storytelling technique created something that was immediately accessible to people. And what is often created in films with direct subsidy from government agencies, and this is certainly true of Canadian cinema, is you get more of a an art cinema or an indie cinema approach or something that is trying to do sort of worthy national epics. And certainly you've got a tradition of that as well to some extent. But even then, uh, and I think also part of it was that before South Korean cinema became the big commercial cinema that it is now, there was a uh, long tradition and it was a tradition that grew up trying to create things around the fringes of what was then a government dictatorship so that many of the costume epics that were created uh, in that tradition kind of subtly subverted the dominant political paradigm, but they were still required to do things that were popular. And I think it's that mix of the uh, popular with the specifically South Korean that has created these exciting new takes on what are mostly traditional Western genres and forms. So it's very accessible to us in a way that, for example, the Bollywood cinema is not necessarily because they're not aiming at a Western tradition the way that uh, the South Korean and before that the Hong Kong cinemas did. Or, you know, the Nollywood tradition in uh, in Nigeria, which is still very much a homegrown uh, industry. Now, maybe 
those seem still pretty primitive to us, but maybe given how many films are made in that tradition, maybe, you know, 15, 20 years from now, we will get a Nigerian uh, John Woo or, or Bong Jang-ho. Well, uh, from your mouth to Nigeria's ears, certainly. Um, what else, Are there any other big uh, must-follow-it-must-find-it-on-DVD uh, highlights that America's um, uh, and, or the, the entire Anglophone world's uh, nerd community must know about? I would keep an eye out for Painless. This is a Spanish film in the politically informed uh, horror mystery tradition established by Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. And in this one, a, a doctor's quest for a bone marrow donor leads him to a strange case from the 30s. It's not a horror film per se. It's a uh, mystery with horror imagery. Uh, but it does, I think, perhaps even a more acute job of dealing not only with the Spanish Civil War, but with the Franco regime and its political consequences. So I'd take a look out for that. Also a film called Room 237, which is another documentary consisting almost entirely of film clips and almost entirely of film clips from The Shining. And it's one in which five amateur obsessive theorists on the true meaning of The Shining all deliver their competing theories on just what it's about. And it's a really fascinating meditation on the point where uh, critique enters the uh, frozen hedge maze of overthinking. And uh, this sort of critical obsession is something perhaps uh, listeners to this podcast might be familiar with. As members of the Geek Tribe, we are prone to overthinking, and this sort of takes that to its a natural, crazy conclusion. Yeah, the, and, and, of course, the joy of seeing something like that applied not just to a Kubrick film, but also to The Shining. It's like a triple, uh, it, it's like a triple uh, fudge latte or something. The Shining is a trap for people who think that way. Yeah. Uh, and is a, uh, all, it's already a puzzle film, but invites obsessiveness. And uh, in, this, in Room 237, it definitely acquires that level of obsessiveness. Well, uh, we could go on all day, and history indicates that we certainly have done that. But if we are ever to see the uh, other huts on our uh, tour, maybe we should leave uh, other highlights, unless there's one last one that you want to leave people with uh, uh, to envy you in your crawler-infested demi-paradise. Uh, very briefly, and speaking of South Korea, I would also check out A Werewolf Boy. It's very broad strokes, crowd-pleaser storytelling. It features a... Uh, quasi-lycanthrope and a uh, touching love story. Uh, it's, uh, I would say, Spielbergian in its storytelling technique and breadth of approach. And I think that if you're not interested in international cinema or indie cinema, but still want to see some cool movies with subtitles, that this is a perfect match of commercial intent and accessibility. And people can certainly go to your uh, website, robindlaws.blogspot.com and uh, see the whole rundown with uh, those uh, perfectly limbed two-line reviews of all of the TIFF uh, highlights from this year. Indeed, and these are films that will be rolling out over the next year or so, so if you want to get some cinematic excitement on your Netflix queue or your DVD rental pile, even as we speak, just go back a year or check out my uh, 2011 reviews, and most of those films will now be out at some point in the distribution chain. And the Chicago Film Festival catalog should be arriving in the next week or so, and then I get to go back through Robin's list and see if any of them made Chicago. And my fingers are crossed, certainly for the thieves. Uh, anyway, um, that, I think, is one heck of a cinema hut, and uh, 
we should perhaps leave some popcorn for the next guy. So the next hut we're going to step into is not so much a hut as a corner. It's our conspiracy corner in which we examine conspiracy theories throughout the world and throughout history, another topic on which Ken is an expert non-pariah. And I thought we would, now that we've closed up our lead time just a little, now that I'm back from the festival, look at a current event. And that current event, of course, is the wave of rioting and uproar through the Muslim world created by a piece of hate propaganda called The Innocence of Muslims. And this is a film which, by all accounts, Ed Wood would sneer at the technical quality of, uh, which was uh, created with the intention of inflaming Muslims and has succeeded in doing so. And the thing that made me think it might be interesting to talk about is the odd background, uh, first of all, of some of the guys who uh, seem to have created this thing, some of which create these sort of alarm bells that make you think that there might be something going on beyond the surface. And we can talk about this for a bit and then zoom out to a broader historical perspective. So the thing that caught my attention, first of all, is that the guy from, actually from the Muslim world, a uh, by all accounts, a Coptic Christian named Nakula Basili Nakula, who has a list of 16 aliases to his name, pretty impressive, as well as convictions for bank fraud and the intent to manufacture meth. Uh, well, who hasn't had the intent to manufacture meth? I mean, that's that's like giving me, you know, a Pulitzer for the novel I'm going to write. That, that right. just seems unfair. Well, he also had some of the ingredients in his truck. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, fine. Or if, if, if you wish to believe that, because, of course, in Conspiracy Corner, we never know what we wish to believe. Right. At any given moment. Uh, but throughout the history of conspiracies, you see these oddball fringe characters engaged uh, in the production of propaganda and often, as propaganda often is, uh, hate propaganda. Uh, and there's some other sort of interesting, colorful details that brought me back uh, to past uh, conspiracies or casts of characters involved with conspiracies. I and I would just like to, before throwing this uh, to you for a bit of context, read a little bit uh, from a Globe and Mail newspaper account, which I think proves that deadpan, perfectly described reporting is not dead. So this describes the uh, script consultant for this film, The Innocence of Muslims. I'm really tired, Stephen Klein said when he answered the door of his home in Hemet, California Friday, with a pistol in his hand and clad only in a pair of white shorts, stained with what appeared to be ink spots. The newspaper said Mr. Klein, a Vietnam veteran, appeared agitated. While waving the gun, he told the newspaper he was standing up for his First Amendment rights and helping with the film, and said he is prepared to die for those rights. And I just thought that was a great little vignette that is uh, can stand with any of the little perfectly colorful moments from the Watergate or uh, the uh, various kooks behind uh, what may or may not have been a conspiracy to kill uh, JFK. Um, but I thought you, you might address the 
general role that hate propaganda plays uh, in conspiracies throughout history. Well, the classic example, and really sort of the um, uh, the one to beat if you are a conspirator, is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a uh, which began as a intent by a branch of the Okrana, not even the entire Okrana, but a guy who was the head of the, the Tsar of Russia's secret police. Uh, and their job was to prevent the czars from being overthrown. And you can tell what a great job they did that uh, by the fact that while they were on the job, uh, no czar died peacefully. <laughs> so this guy's name is uh, Rachovsky, and he was the head of the Paris office of the uh, secret police. And what he apparently decided Russia needed was more people who hated the Jews, which you would seem to be a little Coles to Newcastle, but there you go. So he took an old dialogue intended to undermine Napoleon III, written by a guy named Maurice Jolie, and just changed all of the uh, uh, sort of the, the ridiculous plots and sort of uh, operatic French nonsense in it into the, uh, in, into the uh, purported intentions of the elders of Zion, a secret society uh, that leads the world's Jews. And uh, he made sure to publish it uh, through a sort of a crackpot preacher named Serge Nilish in uh, the Baltic states, I believe. And the uh, thing sort of went viral, as they say. Uh, Henry Ford sort of fell in love with it as sort of demonstrating everything that he believed in the world. And he printed uh, half a million copies to be distributed in the United States and ran excerpts of it in all the Detroit newspapers and was very, very fond of it. And of course, as uh, one does when one is producing uh, not even particularly slick anti-Semitic propaganda, I, I really think it's that sort of Belle Epoque, uh, sort of French bel canto operatic sensibility that really grabs people about the protocols um, that uh, it, it got picked up by the good old Nazis and became a part of the class curriculum in Hitler's Germany starting in 1933 and uh, with the grotesque results that we all uh, uh, recognize now. So the basic plan, I think, for Rachowski was to, by inflaming anti-Semitic sentiment in Russia, to sort of drive uh, Russian opinion against the sort of revolutionaries and problem causers, some number of which were Jewish, like, for example, Trotsky, and basically to create a, a breadth of pro-Russian feeling within Russia that would insulate the czar from the you know, consequences of his own fat-headedness. Uh, and then, obviously, everyone who picked it up later had their own sort of special agenda for what it would accomplish. I mean, I'm sure that Henry Ford thought that what it would do would be to um, uh, sweep away uh, the, the East Coast banking establishment that was getting in his way when he was trying to expand Ford Motors and uh, the people who were standing in the way of a proper industrial society in America. And then uh, Hitler obviously uh, believed, uh, I, th I think, first of all, he had sort of fed into his pre-existing beliefs about sort of race pollution and whatnot, but he also used it as a means of justifying the, the Nuremberg laws and, uh, the, and the rest of that. So you, you sort of, it becomes an all-purpose uh, conspiracy theory, given that it didn't even begin as an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And that's, that I think is really the one that has to, uh, has to be the example of, against which you compare uh, your innocences of Muslims or your uh, whatever else they happen to be. And, and what that illustrates is that the whipping up hatred against a scapegoat group has been a part of the despotic playbook since basically the 
the origin of the, the modern nation state, if not before. And so when you see something like this happening, the question becomes who's actually benefiting from this? And to go back a bit to the film festival, another of the films that I saw was called After the Battle, and it, it was a fictional look at the guys who rode into Tahrir Square on camels and horses and attacked the demonstrators. And this was portrayed at the time and then in the media as a spontaneous eruption of pro-regime violence. And what the film does is explores the fact that, of course, that's not spontaneous, that, in fact, all of these guys were, in fact, guys who used to work in the tourist industry around the pyramids and were told by their local strongman that a wall that had been put up that was ruining their business would be torn down if only they would go and act as thugs and attack the protesters. And the filmmaker before the screening described... Uh, gave some added political context for Western audiences watching the film. And one of the big moments in the film was is when the army behind the scenes makes a deal with the uh, Muslim Brotherhood to, rather than focusing on creating a new democratic institution, instead they try to deflect people's desire for change into just a mere reform of the interior ministry. And so these demonstrations that are being whipped up throughout the Muslim world, the question to figure out is not why are people spontaneously reacting to this cruddy YouTube video, but who is organizing the initial acts of violence and attacks uh, that then perhaps mushroom into something more spontaneous, or as in the case of Libya, it's not even an example of a riot at all. It's an insurgent attack. Yeah, there was uh, conjuries of, of uh, guys associated with Al-Qaeda, who, which, like the Al-Qaeda number two, number three, and number four were all from Libya. Their whole uh, uh, administrative cadre were, were Libyans. So it stands to reason they'd have guys who stayed behind and took advantage of this sort of brouhaha to bring uh, RPGs and heavy machine guns and try and take out an American ambassador. And in the West, we tend to like to look at things as sort of a clash of ideologies as, uh, you know, the culture war writ large on an international scale. But really what you have to remember is that there are always people on the ground in all of these places who are ensconced in a local uh, power structure and are going to take measures to retain that power and that this sort of distraction or attack or the ability to push this button is very useful to them. And so if it will be very interesting to see what other connections uh, this uh, Nikuli Basili Nikula guy has. He may just be a straight-up uh, anti-Muslim agitator, as he seems to be, or maybe, uh, as is often the case, we will find that there are some uh, weird connections between the people generating this material and the people who are benefiting from it on the ground. Yeah, the, it, it's probably not going to be particularly easy to find out because right now no one has an interest in finding out. Everyone would prefer it to be the cover story. Uh, so we will we will certainly see what we will see. It's always 20 years later that the uh, weird background details start to filter out. Or, or even later. Uh, one of the many uh, fine books that I picked up at uh, the uh, Newberry Library book sale here in Chicago was by the defected head of the Romanian equivalent of the National Security Agency, who claims that George de Morenschild, the sort of crazy... Uh, money man who was uh, inexplicably Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend was a KGB asset. 
And so certainly we have only the word of a defected Romanian secret policeman for this, because it turns out that if you are a KGB asset, you don't keep a lot of documentary proof around, and no one has uh, dug it out of the files, which are closed again anyway. But it sort of adds, you know, there's there's never a bottom to the story with, with a lot of these really, uh, really uh, convoluted ones. Yeah, and the more people look into it, the more fake smokescreen theory covers it, and you almost sort of want a... Uh, a second order conspiracy that's a little easier to penetrate than something that has obsessed so many people as the JFK. Right. I, I should point out that the, um, uh, the the notion of the sort of aliens among us who are who are causing problems. Uh, if if you are into uh, the the corner uh, as more than idle decor, if you wish to sort of establish um, uh, housing here in conspiracy corner, you can do considerably worse than to check out the works of Norman Cohn, who wrote the single best book on the protocols called Warrant for Genocide. And he also wrote a book called um, uh, The Formation of the Persecuting Society, which traces the same sort of uh, mimetic complex of, of foreigners, uh, aliens among us who are doing evil, uh, all the way back to ancient Rome and their purge of the worshippers of Bacchus in, I think it's 186 BC. And he demonstrates that the exact same accusations are leveled against the uh, worshippers of Bacchus in 186 against the Jews in Rome, against the Christians in Rome, then again against the Jews by the Christians, then against the Bogomils uh, and other heretics in both the Balkans and in France, and just all the way forward down through the blood libel, down through uh, modern-day anti-Semitism, especially in uh, countries with a more, uh, how shall we say, medieval uh, set of architecture in their own conspiracy corners. And that this, that this uh, mimetic pattern, or whatever you want to call it, is it's robust uh, in the same way that a lot of other things uh, turn out to be robust, and it's one that you would wish perhaps was not quite so robust. But it's interesting when you start, you know, reading anything about an outgroup, and you start recognizing these patterns. Uh, like I say, that go back to ancient Rome. It begins to uh, be borne in on one that perhaps there is more to the story. Indeed, yes, and uh, we will pick that story up, and perhaps in another edition of Conspiracy Corner. Fantastic. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jeremy French asks Ken and Robin, 4E versus Pathfinder, what does each do well, and why the schism? So I dig both versions of D&D and think that both of them do what they set out to do. Uh, one of them I find a little easier to play than the other, but that's my down to the way that my brain works. Uh, so 3E is... Its goal, I think, is to create a set of rules that resolves everything and ex creates an explanation for everything and creates a, uh, not a physics engine per se, but a logic engine for a world that runs on D&D tropes. Whereas 4E is much more focused on just being a, a great game and being a balanced game. And I think a lot of what happened with the split is that the strategy behind 4E did not take into account the extent to which being a well-designed, balanced game was not necessarily number one on everybody's priority list, that what they were looking for was an experience that provided them a platform for uh, not only 
uh, tactical interaction and fighting, but an imaginative experience that could not necessarily be served by a set of game mechanics that focused purely on things that were useful in combat. Yeah, in my uh, own experience, I found 3E, uh, uh, which became Pathfinder, uh, for the for the one guy who uh, is here was saying, Pathfinder, what's that? Uh, the 3E, which became Pathfinder, was a great deal of work to master. And it was work that built on previous mastery of 2nd uh, edition and even AD&D, but it was its own uh, barrel of of, of laughs uh, to, to run and to play. And uh, Pathfinder, I think, rewards people who mastered that, who, who put in the time, who did the crime, and who wanted to, like you say, sort of inhabit an entire world of Dungeons & Dragons conventions, regardless of how uh, ridiculous those conventions might or might not make any individual encounter. And then 4E, I think, went all the way back to the original, original uh, vision of Dungeons & Dragons, uh, which is kick in the door and kill the guy. And, you know, since it began as miniatures combat, this is sort of taking it all the way back to, to chainmail even. And I think it was a phenomenal game of kick in the door and kill the guy. I, I've played a 4E game, a 4E campaign, and I had an elven ranger, and I was doing all kinds of awesome stuff, even at first level. And it was really the same sort of excitement. I mean, nothing's the same excitement that you have when you're 12, because your body is not 80% testosterone. Yeah, but the... um uh, but but the same sort of visceral thrill of kick in the door and kill a guy or kill a bunch of guys, because there's a lot of really great uh, mechanical innovations in 4E, some of which I lifted for Knights Black Agents. But the, the but the but that sort of feeling was very much an isolated bead on a string, and your job as players and as GM was basically to get to the next bead, not to sort of fan out and explore a universe. And obviously, we're talking in generalities. There are people who can build... Uh, immersive universes with 4E, and there are people who found uh, 3E, no doubt, intuitive and simple. But for, the, I think, the majority of the audience in both cases, Dungeons & Dragons was attempting to sort of, uh, I, I think, explore a new-slash-old audience, and because the mechanics were so different, it sort of devalued the mastery that had gone into learning D20-slash-3E-slash-3.5. And when you had, you know, a million people learning that stuff, it's perhaps not crazily unlikely that if you then let that uh, that uh, game engine go to another company, some non-trivial people, non-trivial percentage of people will follow you. And when that other company is uh, run as well uh, and produces as much quality stuff as Paizo does, uh, and I can say this having never been paid by them to produce any stuff, uh, I think that they, um, uh, <laughs> you know, you really sort of, uh, they, they made their own bed when they made that decision. It would be interesting to peer into the alternate universe where the two designs of uh, uh, 3E and 4E were the same, but that the 4E kept the OGL in place and the uh, then powers that uh, uh, were, uh, who are no longer the powers at uh, the Watsi D&D department, kept Paizo on side as a partner. Because surely someone would have pursued that strategy. But it's a big open question as to whether anyone would have had the resources and the uh, determination and the need to pursue it as assiduously and execute it as well as the Paizo gang did. So, yeah, uh, Paizo very much was in sort of a Cortez has burned his boats, now we have to conquer Mexico type moment there uh, as the 
if they if they could grab that empire, they'd have gold for centuries. Uh, whereas if you're, I think you're right. If they had sort of a vested interest in keeping 4E going, and they were even just that much distracted uh, in terms of the creative opportunities of building out 4E. That, that that would have uh, certainly vitiated the the power of Pathfinder. So I think there certainly would still have been a schism because both of the games think very differently and therefore appeal to people with different mindsets. And we are not necessarily accustomed to stepping back and saying, taking the level of analysis of, well, this game does this and this thinks the way that I think. This other game doesn't think the way that I think, so I prefer A, let's all get along to, you know, we as as humans are used to taking I don't like this game to the next step, which is this game sucks. And, you, right. you know, you add internet forums to that and then you get the emotional heat of the schism. But, you know, the internet will give you emotional heat to any argument even involving Aquaria or train spotting. And in fairness, um, the uh, Wizards uh, marketing people definitely attempted to uh, sort of uh, fan the flames of 3E contempt with their uh, advertising campaign for 4E. And, you know, I, like you say, I think that it was inevitable that there would have been a schism, and since it would have been conducted on the internet by nerds, it would have been, you know, an annoying, uh, badly expressed schism. But I think Wizards fanned those flames uh, in, in your sort of um, uh, crappy YouTube video style and uh, sort of uh, reaped the whirlwind a little bit as by creating a, well, justified is perhaps overstating the case, but certainly a less irrational sense of persecution amongst 3E fans than would otherwise have obtained. Yeah, the huge success of Paizo is attributable in large part to their strategy of creating a community of people around their game and having the big open play test. And, uh, you know, there was some skepticism that anybody would want to buy Pathfinder since they all had it in their notes. And that, of course, skepticism was blown away by the giant line of people on the floor of Gen Con the day that Pathfinder dropped because all of those people who took part in that playtest felt not only like they were players, not just consumers, but they were part of a proselytizing army. And so that's also where you get the uh, emotional charge that powers the schism. Although in a lot of ways, you know, the differences between the editions are not as massive as you think. Both of them, for example, are inspired to a significant degree by the R&D culture at Wizards of the Coast that comes out of the experience of doing Magic the Gathering and other CCGs. So in the case of third edition, one of the watchwords was to create something that required a high degree of mastery in order to create that emotional connection that you talk about, right? It has a high learning curve, but once you've undergone that learning curve, you're going to be extremely loyal to it because you've spent all of this time learning the ins and outs and learning how to create an optimal character with all of these hidden taxes and tolls that you have to pay, right? You need this feat uh, in order to make this character viable, but that isn't necessarily apparent until you put do a bunch of homework. Uh, whereas the goal of 4E was not so interested in that. It wanted to make it easier to run in a lot of ways, which is why I find it easier to run. For example, you get the monster stats, and they only include the things you need to run an encounter with them. But they took a different thing from the CCG movement, which was the design approach was the fact that it was an exceptions-based role-playing game. And uh, because of that, you uh, on a design level, I find it really intriguing 
but it was, uh, and, and for a lot of people who are interested in that level of the, the game that really, uh, works as a game, that's where the audience of 4E is. And that's, uh, what people going from 4E to the new version of D&D are going to look for an equivalent of that. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see as they attempt to square all of these circles and bring every, you know, bring the D&D diaspora back into one community, whether they're going to be able to do that or not. But they both have strong, similar intellectual strands in them, albeit ones that went in different directions. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a standard outlier effect, right? You send uh, part of uh, part of the culture out, and what it builds is going to be built uh, very much um, uh, uh, like the one strand that you sent out in the first place. So you, the the various editions certainly seem to to concentrate and crystallize these various aspects that are all part of the great skein of D&D. And on that note, let us uh, close up our Ask Ken and Robin mailbox. Uh, so finally, we're uh, back to one of our already favorite segments here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and this is Consulting Occultist, in which I throw out a name of a prominent occultist or occult movement to Ken, and he gives us the 101. For this post-film festival edition, I thought I would do something that was easy on my mushy brain and throw out an obvious name, one that has already come up a bunch of times in previous iterations of this podcast, and that is Lester Crowley. So, Ken, uh, who was Lester Crowley, and uh, why is he important? Well, uh, Aleister Crowley uh, was uh, Edward Alexander Crowley to begin with, and uh, then became Frater Perdurabo and the Great Beast 666. He is important because he was sort of, uh, you know, one of those guys at the sweet spot when uh, these uh, intellectual notions that are in the air or pseudo-intellectual notions that are in the air are all getting uh, congealed, and the guy who congeals it best gets to be Bram Stoker, and then everyone else has to be the guy who wants to be like Bram Stoker. And Aleister Crowley, in a very real way, was for sort of uh, Western uh, magic, uh, he turned out to be the Bram Stoker. He's the guy that everyone sort of has to bounce off of. So wh- when does Crowley flourish? What, when is his period? His, his great flourishing, uh, I think, comes while, uh, you know, his real flourishing, I think, comes after he gets kicked out of the Golden Dawn in 1900. He's a member of our old buddies, the Golden Dawn, and uh, immediately picks fights with everyone and is a jerk because that's the kind of guy he was. And then once he got kicked out, he had a, what every um, uh, uh, person really needs if you're going to start a movement is an enemy to yell at. And yelling at Christianity was his standard enemy, but since Christianity generally doesn't pay attention to you, even if you're the Antichrist, uh, you have to sort of focus it down. And once he was able to sort of uh, make fun of uh, the other guys who might have been the Bram Stoker, then he really sort of takes off and he writes um, uh, the Book of the Law. He writes uh, all of his sort of uh, great classic standards. He sort of uh, he, his his shot across their bow was to publish all of their secret rituals in his magazine, which was pretty terrific of him, I think. Uh, and he just sort of uh, spent... His parents were rich brewers, or his dad was a rich brewer. His mother was a, probably a very put-upon woman. And uh, he spent all of his inheritance uh, going around the world, climbing mountains, getting in, initiated into various magical uh, societies, 
doing a huge amount of drugs, uh, being just horrible to women, and uh, generally having a great time, as far as anyone can tell. Uh, I suppose maybe once the money ran out, he started being miserable, and he certainly started being even more miserable to other people. But sort of between 1900 and, say, the First World War, Crowley is in his element, and even to an extent in the 20s, although in the 20s you really start seeing that sort of desperate publicity hound, hey, I'm still relevant type part of his personality that really takes off uh, in, in, the, in the later period of his life. Although, admittedly, in the later, later period of his life, he's still producing, that's when he designs his tarot deck, for example, which is a terrific tarot deck and uh, was done in the same sort of uh, nitpicky, uh, you have to fix this. A way that all good tarot decks are designed. So, so does Crowley have a, a thesis? Does he have a, a grand scheme, or is he a synthesis of other traditions? Well, his he would of course say that he has a thesis, which is the Book of the Law that was revealed to him by the spirit Iwas in Egypt. Um, his thesis has been certainly expressed uh, most memorably by Rabelais 150 years before Crowley was born, as "Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law." Uh, Rabelais, I think, was making a joke, uh, but uh, ironically, Crowleyian, as it were, yeah, exactly, and and Crowley, of course, um, uh, is very famous amongst those of us who read him for having made an awful lot of jokes in the course of his work, all of which his po-faced disciples took as gospel, and so it, it's sort of delightful that he sort of misses the point of Rabelais's Abbey of Thelema. It, it's in a way he's sort of cosplaying uh, uh, Gargantuan Pantagruel uh, for much of his life. And so he's, uh, his thesis basically is Golden Dawn style magic with a f- focus, being Crowley after all, on the individual magus progressing, uh, through mystical experience. And once you have defeated, uh, the, the, the what he called the Dweller at the Threshold, uh, or the Demon Charanzan, the Dweller at the Threshold he lifted from Bulwer Lytton's uh, novel Zanoni, then you are a magus and you are basically beyond good and evil, beyond uh, 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 any sort of moral law. It's sort of uh, Nietzscheanism plus occultism becomes Crowleyanism. And he, you know, he certainly lived the dream. I mean, you, you, well, you can call him a number of things, but a hypocrite, I don't think you can call him. And uh, he basically, you know, he was, he was genuinely intellectually in- interested in uh, Hindu myth, uh, myth in various other uh, forms of esoteric discipline. He was, you know, a quick study. He went to Cambridge, after all, and did fairly well. I think he may have gotten thrown out, though, uh, for being a drunken reprobate. But he uh, he certainly, um, uh, you know, he could hold his own in, in Cambridge. He was just not, uh, he was not a guy to sit quietly while other people told him what to do. And so the Don culture of uh, the British university system was perhaps not for him. So we're seeing a couple of uh, recurring themes here. We're seeing, first of all, Bulwer-Lytton as a ur-source for... Uh, Victorian and beyond uh, occult imagery. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, my recurring question always is, where does he sit on the charlatan prophet spectrum? To what extent was he a believer in what he was promulgating? Well, that is, I think, the great enigma of Crowley, right? Because so much of his work, when I read it, is so obviously an in-joke and so obviously him being a smart aleck. Uh, for example, when he continuously quotes from Bulwer-Lytton and uses Bulwer-Lytton's monster as the demon you have to destroy to get to the other side and become a magus, that can't be serious. I mean, he can't literally believe that uh, Edward Bulwer-Lytton w- was um, uh, an initiate of any kind. 
but he then talks about going out in the desert and uh, just being brutal to his buddy Victor Newberg as his way of um, uh, transcending everything. And so you have to wonder, given how awful he was to Victor Newberg, you certainly hope that he believed he was transcending dwellers at the threshold when he did that stuff in Algeria. And so, you know, you sort of are rooting for him to be uh, uh, someone who actually believes that he's the Antichrist. And certainly, you know, one can one can go all over the map on, on anyone who starts a, a new religion uh, and then say, you know, is, is, is Joseph Smith a prophet or, or, a, or a huckster who wants to sleep around on his wife? You know, you, you can ask the same question about uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, and I think with perhaps more certainty uh, you get the answer. But Crowley is the same sort of guy, except that when you read him, as opposed to reading Hubbard or the Book of Mormon, you really, or at least I really, get the joke. I mean, I read his stuff, and it is hilarious. He talks, for example, in uh, the theory and uh, magic and theory and practice about uh, Lewis Carroll as a guide to Kabbalistic thought. And Lewis Carroll, again, can be made into a guide to Kabbalistic thought with not a ton of effort, but to recommend it straight-faced in the course of a book that is, in theory, supposed to be the uh, magic made simple for you fools. And, of course, again, the hilarity is that every time he discusses some sort of magical effect or, uh, or or ritual in that book, there is either a warning not to do it, or there is something left out that if you read his other books, you see what he left out, and it's usually the part that prevents the notional demon from eating you. So, the... Uh, he, you, you can go back and forth on him. I mean, I, I think that he certainly was a monstrous egomaniac, and so, at some point, he may have believed that even his ridiculous in-jokes count as a religion, and given his notion of what other religions were, uh, maybe he, you know, was was not seeing any difference between him and St. Paul. Well, and he's certainly not the last person to take details from things that are obviously part of pop culture and then uh, incorporate them into an occult system. And when called on that, say, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, so you've got people who uh, believe that the Cthulhu mythos has actual occult resonance. I once, uh, while engaged in an ego search, found uh, people using stuff from my over-the-edge supplement, uh, the weather the cuckoo likes, as part of their occult ritual. And I, I, as the author of that, I, I can attest to the fact that I just made that up. Yes, well, uh, a, a proper occultist, uh, or rather a proper practitioner, comes back and says, you think you made that up, what you were was a channel for forces that you don't comprehend. I mean, I have plenty of books, uh, including one of Crowley's sort of uh, alpha disciples, uh, Kenneth Grant, talking specifically about how Lovecraft is a, um, a, a, a prophet uh, who does not necessarily know that he is being uh, a prophet, that he is revealing truths uh, in the only way that Lovecraft was able to reveal them, that he was a flawed vessel being filled full of Cthulhu truth. So along with this tradition of incorporating pop culture into occult belief, what are the other influences that Aleister Crowley introduced into the intellectual bloodstream that are still active today? I, I think a lot of it is just sort of the specific uh, flavor of his work. I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, he, he in, in addition to the material that the Holy Angel Iwas uh, dictated to him, he then sort of expanded on it a, a great deal. Um, and I think that a lot of it is just that sort of uh, sex, drugs, uh, He's pre-rock and roll, but certainly uh, rotten behavior in hotel rooms. Uh, ethos that so perfectly fits the 20th uh, and so far 21st century libertine is something that he gave a sort of 
ideally antinomian spin to, right? You're, you're shaking your fist at someone who doesn't care because either they're William Butler Yeats and they're busy talking to fer- uh, fairies, or they're the church and, you know, seriously, as long as you're not uh, putting a murrin on people's cattle, they don't, they don't need to hunt down witches. Antichrist, get in line. Yeah, exactly. We, we've got, we got a lot to go. Um, I, I think uh, he had a genuine talent as a poet. Uh, he was certainly, va- he was no William Butler Yeats by any stretch of the imagination, but that gave his, his work a sort of a style and a sticking uh, a level that a lot of uh, would-be occult masterminds do not have. And I think that just in general, the notion that uh, he, he sort of brings sex magic uh, out of the shadows and into sort of the, the front pages in, in various ways, which certainly, again, fits fit the times. Uh, and that sort of, you know, I, I, I don't know that he particularly contributes anything besides the language and the, uh, and the attitude. But, you know, again, you could say that about Bob Dylan, and certainly Bob Dylan has been uh, uh, well, uh, widely influential and much in, uh, imitated figure in his uh, particular version of uh, libertinism. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot to Crowley without there being a lot to Crowley, I guess, is, is what I would say. And, of course, he just has an exciting, fun life and manages to meet an awful lot of people who work really well in fiction or role-playing games. And when we talked about the Theosophists, we looked at how there was a, after a degree of separation, there was an influence of their thinking upon the Nazis. Does uh, Crowley's wild man status uh, inoculate him from the uh, subsequent stain of having uh, influenced those guys? Crowley is actually gets thrown out of Italy by Mussolini once Mussolini takes over. So he begins on bad terms with the fascists. There is a great, if sadly completely unverifiable anecdote in Peter Lavenda's uh, book, um, which the name of which escapes me right off the top of my head, in which uh, Lavenda says that Crowley was in uh, Berlin uh, molesting his current scarlet woman, his his current bride of Antichrist, and uh, slapping her around and. Uh, a group of brown shirts across the street see this sort of squatty, beak-nosed untermenschen getting up in the face of a blonde uh, picture of German uh, femininity and cross the street and curb-stomp him, which, as Lavenda says, is the only good deed ever performed by the stormtroopers. <laughs> so, in general, Crowley is is not a Nazi, I, I think basically because... The, the glam side of Nazism got purged so fast that they, that they really wouldn't have had a, a, anything to do with him. And, uh, he, he was buddies with a lot of fascists in England, uh, like, uh, JFC Fuller, the father of British armored, uh, uh, car doctrine and Maxwell Knight, the head of, uh, one of the heads of counterintelligence for MI5. And those guys were, were definitely of the sort of fascism is a great thing to kill communists with. We should have more of it but not so much uh, setting up a fascist state in Britain type people. And uh, his buddy Ian Fleming suggested that maybe he could be brought in to interrogate Rudolf Hess to find out about Nazi occultism and was summarily ignored, as he probably should have been. But uh, to the extent that there is a Crowley and Nazis myth, the myth is that Crowley may have been the Antichrist by gum, but he was a British Antichrist (laughs) and had no truck with Hitler. Uh, Well, on on that reassuring note, I think uh, we have heard from the consulting occultist once more. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to credit composer James Semple for the killer bumper music that appears in all of our episodes. Acquire his music for Trail of Cthulhu, The Esoterrorists, and Soon Ashen Stars at the Pelgrane Press web store. Speaking of that, let's also thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Find our website where you can leave comments and comiums and pans at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.